Thank you, Beryl, and uh, good, e- good evening, everyone. Thank you. Let me pray. God, who at the beginning spoke and called the world into being, who in ancient times spoke through the prophets, who in these last days has spoken through a son. Now we ask that you would speak to us by and through your word and that the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus may show us our place in your story and indeed your place in the story of our lives. Amen. never quite know what the appropriate greeting is uh, this time between Christmas and New Year. At what time do we stop saying Happy Christmas? And at what time do we start saying Happy New Year? It seems the, um, the usual greeting that we have is, did you have a nice Christmas? So I better ask you, did you have a nice Christmas? Um, I wonder what the highlight, you know, the, the, the highlight of your Christmas is. Is it in the lead up? I always thought that Christmas Eve was uh, a magical time, the anticipation of everything. Uh, when I was ignorant of all the hard work my parents were having to put into all the, all the preparations. Or maybe it's the day itself. Uh, or maybe it's the days after Christmas when, it, when it's all over. That's the highlight for you. I don't know, but maybe you have uh, a highlight uh, of the Christmas. Or as we do approach the uh, close of 2014, looking back over the year, the past year, do you have a highlight Do you have uh, a particular day that stands out, I wonder? Or perhaps even looking now right back, perhaps as some of us do at the end of each year, looking back not only over the previous year, but over all the years of our lives, thinking, well, what does that all add up to? And are there some, is there a bit of a notable day or moment in your life? Or could it be something of the opposite? As you look back over Christmas, over the year, over your life, that there's some real sadness, disappointment, regret, or hurt that continues to hang over you and that you cannot dispel or find real relief from. Or maybe indeed for many of us, there's a mixture of those things, of high points, and low low points of blessings and of disappointments as we look back. It's part of what it means to be human, isn't it? To have such a mixture of feelings and experiences. Well, just such a couple of human beings who knew sadnesses and disappointments and regrets, yet also met a high point in their lives, we find in our scripture reading that we had from Beryl just a few moments ago. If you could uh, keep your Bible open or reopen it at Luke chapter 1, in the church Bibles is 1,025 and 26. And this couple is Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And just before I concentrate on that aged couple who had known sadness and disappointment and yet 
were now suddenly to find themselves blessed in a very remarkable way. I just want to just quickly draw your attention to the first uh, four verses of Luke, since we are in uh, a short series. Is it a short series in the first couple of uh, chapters of, of, of Luke? Yes, but we can make it longer. Or oh, we can make it longer, depending on how, <laughs> how we get on. But certainly we, for the next uh, few Sunday evenings, we're in these early chapters of Luke's Gospel. And um, I just want to emphasize really what Luke says about the way he has put his gospel together. And indeed, not only the gospel, but also part two, uh, which is the Acts of the Apostles. I just want to say to you, point out to you that uh, could he have tried any harder to convince us that what he has written down in these two writings, the, his gospel, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Gospels, is stuff that really happened. Look at what he says. Uh, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled in us, just as they were handed down to us, uh, 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 to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And since, he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Do you see, he's piling up word after word, description after description, saying, I have carefully researched this, I've studied it, and I am confident these things happened. The Christian faith is an historical faith. God acted in history, in space and time, in and amongst real people, real people like you and I, real people like Zachariah and Elizabeth. Just, uh, just to emphasize the historical nature of what Luke is reporting Now, we come on to focus on uh, verses 5 to 25, and what I'm going to call a day to remember for this couple. I should think it jolly well was a day to remember. And the first point I want to make about what happened is it happened to really rather ordinary people. It happened to ordinary people. Here we have a humble couple, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Well, they were of priestly stock, both descended from Aaron, uh, but they certainly didn't belong to the aristocracy, the priestly aristocracy who lived in around Jerusalem. We learn from verse 39 that they lived out in the Judean hill country. So they were country folk. And uh, they were also humble and ordinary in the sense that, like so many people in every age, they carried around a great and deep (coughs) sadness. Elizabeth was childless. She was barren. And they were now, now both elderly. And just as today there are childless couples for whom it is a great sadness, as though uh, there's a deep emptiness in their lives that they were just longed. They just felt their lives would have been fulfilled if they'd had a child. Um, In a sense, even more so for this couple, for children in those days were not simply a part of your your own self-fulfillment. They were also uh, a guarantee of your future because they would uh, care for you in your old age, and also it was important in those days for uh, children to carry on uh, the family line. 
And so in many ways there was deep sadness and also what Elizabeth calls in verse 25 a disgrace. People would have looked down on Elizabeth. In fact, to be childless in those days, were, were, for a woman to be childless, were grounds for divorce. It was, uh, that was the level of reproach for childlessness. And they were, as verse 7 tells us, getting on years and no doubt had given up all hope of ever having a child. But unlike some who carry such deep sadnesses around for so many years, this couple seemed not to have become bitter, certainly had not become faithless. Um, They were indeed a faithful couple, as we see in verse 6. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. They were faithful. They had not lost faith in this God who had not blessed them with children. In fact, my very saying, God had not blessed them with with children, um, reminds me of a Christian couple uh, known to some of us. I remember uh, the wife uh, standing here in Trinity and saying, uh, God has not, did not bless us with children. And that was their account of their own childlessness. They were not bitterly regretful or angry against God. They simply said, God has not blessed us with children. And such an attitude this couple seems to have taken. They didn't uh, hate God for it, but they certainly would have been very sad about it. But their childlessness, their sadness reminds us that God's people quite often do carry around for a long time, maybe even for a lifetime, some sadness, some regret, some disappointment, some unanswered prayer, some if only. And we can perhaps just try prayerfully to take a leaf out of their book by not becoming bitter against God for what he seemed to have withheld from us for so very long. But in so many ways, an ordinary couple. Have you noticed in the Gospel accounts that Jesus himself, our Lord and Saviour, is dismissed as being ordinary himself? In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus' critics come out with the following about Jesus Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name? Mary, and not his brothers, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and not his sisters, or with us. And they took offence at him. Do you see what they're saying about him? He's just ordinary, nothing special about him. And as Jesus himself said on another occasion, a prophet is not without honour except in his own home town. And so it can be said of so many of God's people as well, that they're kind of not very special. Paul said to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God, uh, Paul didn't say not any of these people, very, really clever, really powerful, really noble, but he did say not many. God has, it seems, almost a bias in favor of the ordinary, the weak, those who know their need of him because they know they are vulnerable without God. So whatever is happening in this chapter happened to really rather ordinary people. And it was to such ordinary people that something extraordinary happened. So I'm now moving on to my second point. It happened, uh, it involved an extraordinary encounter. Now Zechariah was, as we have seen already, a priest, descended from Aaron, uh, just as Elizabeth, his wife, was. Um, Now, there were thousands of priests, thousands of Aaron's descendants in uh, Israel at the time. And uh, so they would take turns being on duty for a two-week period in and around the temple. But one of them would be chosen by the casting of a lot to burn incense in the holy place. And with so many thousands of priests, and each only serving two weeks uh, in, in the year, to burn incense in the holy place was a once-in-a-lifetime honor. It happened just once, maybe twice in a lifetime, if at all. And so for Zechariah, his big day, his big honor had come. And in verse 10, we see a a crowd of worshippers outside as Aaron goes in to the holy place to burn incense uh, there. They are worshippers, they are praying, and they're waiting for him to burn incense on the altar and then come out. And when he came out, they would expect him to pronounce on them the Aaronic blessing. If you don't know or have forgotten what the Aaronic blessing is, well, be patient, because we will sing it at the end of our service. By the way, there is this um, anonymous crowd of worshippers in and around the temple at the time, just reminding us that uh, God's people, even though the voice of prophecy had been virtually silent for 400 years, there was still actually quite a crowd of faithful Believers praying, waiting, and worshipping. I say an anonymous crowd, but I think I know the name of one person in the crowd. Just look again at what it said in verse 10. Um, When the time for the burning of the incense came, the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Now, if you turn on just quickly for something I've only just noticed or just realised to chapter 2, and um, verse 36. This is the eight-day-old Jesus being brought to that very place, to the temple, to be circumcised. And there was also a prophetess, Anna. She was very old. She never left the temple 
but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. She would have been there, wouldn't she? Nine months-ish earlier. That's slightly by the way. While Zechariah is fulfilling his service in the temple, in the holy place, he senses an otherworldly presence. Verse 12, so we're back to chapter 1 now, chapter 1 and verse 12 tells us that he is filled with alarm. It's an angel. And the angel says, as angels so often say in scripture, several times in Luke's gospel, don't be afraid. Because the natural reaction when you meet an angel is to be afraid. They are mighty um, beings. But the angel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been answered. What prayer? Is it the prayer that he and his wife will have been offering in years gone by for a child? Or is it perhaps a, a broader prayer for God to visit his people and dream his people? Or maybe a combination of the both. Whatever Zechariah's prayer had been, the angel says, your prayer has been heard. And then uh, the angel explains to Zechariah what the outcome uh, is, is going to be in terms of the, the birth of a very notable uh, son. Zechariah can't really believe it. How can I be sure of this? He says, I'm old. He says, well, um, I know you've just told me, I know you're an angel, I know that you're a scary creature, but I need some kind of sign or guarantee, please. So Zechariah says in verse 18, problem is, I'm old, can't have children. Uh, The angel's response is to tell Zechariah exactly who he is. He puffs out his angelic chest. He reaches his full angelic height. What would it be? Eight foot? Nine foot? I don't know how tall these angels are. And he says, I am Gabriel. Gabriel. And Zechariah goes through his head thinking, I know that name. Gabriel appeared to Daniel uh, several hundred years before. Look it up in Daniel chapter 8 and 9 as a messenger from God. And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. By the way, do you think, I wonder how far you think Daniel, uh, Gabriel had traveled from the presence of God. You kind of think it would have been sort of the other end of the universe, wouldn't you? And he sort of took this, um, this journey at light speed, at the speed of light, uh, to, get to, um, uh, to get to Zechariah. You can imagine that's where the presence of God would be. Do you know where the presence of God was? Just the other side, behind the curtain. <laughs> Zechariah is standing at the altar in the holy place. A curtain separates where he is from the Holy of Holies, where God was said to be present. And I can't quite get my head around that. And that's another point that I've only just realized. But it's just a kind of a 
curious and, I think, very significant thought that God and angels are nearer to us than perhaps we think or imagine. Just the other side of that curtain. Not a very long journey at all. Anyway, you don't mess with an angel. There's a lot of tripe uh, spoken about angels these days in New Age circles. You know, this kind of lovely idea that every time you see a, a white feather fall in the air, that's an angel. Lovely thought. Angels aren't like that at all in Scripture. Angels are big and powerful and mighty and really rather scary. And I have to keep saying to people, don't be afraid, because that's their natural reaction. Don't mess with angels. Uh, Zechariah shouldn't have messed with Gabriel because he is going to get a sign uh, that what Gabriel is saying is true, but not the sign perhaps he expected or wanted. He's not going to be able to speak until the prophecy is fulfilled and the child is born. You may think it's a rather nasty thing to zap him in that kind of way. I actually think it was really a rather gracious thing to do. Uh, to give Zechariah, to take him, as it were, out of this kind of ability to communicate very clearly and give him time to reflect. Well, not precisely. Something like that happened to me when I first became a Christian. Um, I was the second most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. Um, I don't know if you know who the most reluctant convert was in all of Christendom, C.S. Lewis said he was, so I'll take second place to C.S. Lewis as the second most reluctant convert. I've been a sceptic and a cynic for uh, several years, for, uh, mounting every argument I could think of against the Christian faith. And um, as I was walking to work one day, as I, the way I often put it is that the big question mark in my mind just was turned in, into an exclamation mark. And my no was answered by God's yes. And um, that was my conversion. All on my own. Um, and straight... Uh, and my big worry was, I'd been so... I was such a proud young man. I was 19 at the time. And I'd been such a proud cynic, cynic and sceptic. How was I going to find the humility to tell people what had just happened to me? I didn't have a clue. I was going to explain to my parents, my Christian friends, uh, and, and, and so on, what I was going to say. Look, it's right what you've been saying to me all this time. Um, but I became deaf uh, for almost immediately. Uh, uh, and in, uh, uh, both my, I couldn't hear in either my ears. And if you've ever been deaf, uh, then you know that if you're deaf, you can't really talk. And um, so I was deaf and became really rather silent and non-communicative for a week or so, and said virtually nothing. And by that time, I'd become used to this shocking <laughs> experience that I'd had, that God had found me, and, uh, and then found uh, one or two people and started telling them. Uh, but uh, I, fe I felt it was very gracious on God's part to give me that few days of reflection, of silence, uh, and thinking and of praying before I started putting into words what God had done to me and for me. So I think it's really rather gracious what God has done uh, to Zechariah in uh, not really zapping him, but just giving him time to reflect and take him out of the equation uh, for, um, for, for a time. Anyway, this, uh, what happened to an ordinary uh, couple, to ordinary people, involved 
an extraordinary encounter, as you can see. And now thirdly, what happened was the continuation of an ancient story. Scholars tell us that as we move from the first four verses of Luke uh, Luke chapter 1 into this section, we drop from a very, what would have been in in those days, a very sort of classical but modern way of writing Greek into a very a very antique atmosphere. And it is very antique in a variety, in, in so many ways. Um, uh, Luke, in so many ways, wants to, sh- to show that what's happening is part of God's ancient story being taken a big step forward. God is about to do a new thing, but it's deeply rooted in the past. After all, Zechariah is a priest, a very ancient occupation. And his wife is the, uh, is the daughter of a priest. Elizabeth's very barrenness puts us in touch with other barren women whom God blessed in the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, and perhaps no, most notably of all, uh, in this context, Hannah, Samuel's mother. The whole thing is centred on the temple an ancient place of worship. These were godly people worshipping God according to his laws and commandments. Like Anna, who I referred to earlier, and Simeon also in chapter 2, they would have been waiting and praying and looking for the consolation of Israel and for the redemption of Jerusalem. Then in verse 17, we've got a reference to Elijah from the Old Testament and an allusion to the prophet Malachi. The whole thing is full of echoes and resonances with the Old Testament story. This ancient story is coming to its climax. Just as Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. So we are in an ancient story that's now taking a big step forward and reaching its climax in this prophecy of um, the coming of John the Baptist, because, of course, that is who this child would become, this child of Zechariah and Elizabeth. What this couple wanted was a child. In answering their prayer, God not only gave them this longed-for child, but he gave some other gifts as well. He gave the nation a great prophet. John the Baptist was regarded as the greatest of all the prophets by Jesus. More, More than that, in John the Baptist, God was giving the whole world hope. Truly, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ever ask or think. But now the announcement of John's birth is about to be interrupted by the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. Many points of similarity between the way John's birth is announced and Jesus' birth is announced. But the contrast is inescapable. Luke will not let us think about John whether also getting us to think about Jesus, to whom John points. 
John, according to verse 15, would be great in the eyes of the Lord. But he would only be a signpost. He would only be a forerunner. The one to whom he pointed would be, chapter 2 and verse 11, another angelic uh, uh, um, announcement, the one to whom he appointed would be a saviour who is Christ the Lord. So just as Luke, in all these ways, points from John to Jesus, so as we gather here this evening, we too are pointed to Jesus, not least as we celebrate Holy Communion together and as we remember his death until he comes again. Will we be found like this old couple, faithful couple, with their sadnesses they'd carried around for so many years? Will we be found faithfully keeping on, keeping on until the Lord's return, despite any setbacks and disappointments that may come our way? And at the close of another year, we are reminded that God's story is hastening on towards its conclusion. Will we, in the year to come, point to Jesus, his miraculous conception, his joyful birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension, his continuing rule, his promised return? And will we realise that just as God used ordinary people as part of his story, so we can make, in the year to come, God's story, our story, as we discern his movement at work in our lives, in our families, and in our church together. May it be so, in Jesus' name. Let us pray, and then Adrian will continue in prayer for us and with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all these pointers to the wonder of your birth, the wonder of your coming, the wonder of your achievement, the wonder of your continuing existence and rule in our midst. Reign in us and in our midst. Reveal yourself to us by your spirit. May we feed on you in our hearts by faith this very evening. And may we be, strength, be strengthened to live and work for him through whatever life holds for us, whether blessings, in all its blessings, and all its sadnesses and disappointments too. May we remain faithful to him uh, every day, every week, and every month. Amen.